1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray together. Lord Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond my thoughts or our thoughts. Holy Spirit, teach us now how to rightly process, how to rightly capture and stand on and hold to your good news, which is better news than any other news we've been carrying around. Help us. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and happy Easter. I hope you all are feeling as good as you're looking with all your pastels. Uh, If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Today, I have the privilege of starting a brand new preaching series called the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed. Of course, not to be confused with Apollo Creed, who is my movie lookalike. My doppelganger from Rocky II, of course, but this is Apostles' Creed. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be going over different affirmations of the basics of our Christian faith, doctrines about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, and in particular, what the Son, Jesus, has accomplished on our behalf. We're going to go over particular affirmations, attestations, things that we stand on and believe in. Now, I want to read verse 3 again. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Would you all read that with me from the screen? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This verse helps me lead to how I want to introduce, how I'm going to preach through our six verses in our passage today, as well as really helps me to underline, I have a kind of observation from this verse, it's going to help me underline why it's important that we're taking a month to go through the Apostles' Creed and preach through our doctrines like this. Here goes that observation. The value of what's delivered dictates the importance of the message. The value of what's delivered dictates the importance of the message. I'm going to illustrate this. If I said to you, hey, come back to church next week. I'm going to bake some cookies for you, some chocolate cookies. And I'll have them ready for you before our service next week. Well, you might be flattered by my gesture, but it's very likely that that message wouldn't really stick, right? You know, maybe you'd come back next week and, and next week you'd, you'd kind of 
remember some faint message about, there's something about chocolate he's delivering to me or something like that. But it wouldn't be a message that sinks deeply into your soul and that's adhered to by your lifestyle, right? Because after all, it's just a message about cookies. But listen, if I said, hey, listen, on Friday, I'm going to gift to you my 2017 Chevy Camaro. See, I'm moving to Spain, and I'm not going to need it there. And so I need you to meet me at 10.30 a.m. Friday at the DMV so we can do a transfer of ownership. And I'm going to cover the taxes for you, too. Now, with this sort of delivery, you would write down the message. You would write it down carefully. You'd get out your iPhone or your other lesser type of phone, right? And, uh, and you'd record the message. Heck, you would, to remember all the particular details, you might even make a song out of it, right? Like, to remember the details, it would change how you live your life that week. You'd get out your Waze app right away and find out, what are the traffic patterns like on Friday mornings? Because I've got to make sure that I'm early to the DMV. You see, the value of what's being delivered dictates the importance of the message. When cookies are delivered, little messaging is required. When a car is being gifted, we need to seriously coordinate our schedules, Right? When a president of the United States is being delivered on Air Force One, it requires hundreds of people to be in communication and coordination together. But when a man rises from the dead, after having paid a final sacrifice of complete atonement for all of human sin... And in accordance with promises, particular promises, and he rises from the dead. This is the sort of delivery which requires a very important and careful message. It actually causes the the stopping of armies and the bowing of nations. And people's lives are altered by this message. In fact, in the wake of this message, it changes everything. The value of what's delivered dictates the importance Of the message. Now, in our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is not delivering an important message. He's delivering the thing of most, of first importance. First importance. And so he's doing it with a very careful and methodical message. Friends, there are are only just a few precious things in life that are important. Right, like really important things that we should really focus on. And sadly, you and I don't tend to put enough weight in our schedules and our life and our worries and our words into the important things as much as the lesser important things. God help us. There are only a few important things. But there's only one thing that's of first importance, like Paul is saying here. Paul's delivering to the Corinthians, this church, Yet again, what he says, that which is of first importance. These are basic affirmations of Christian faith. And he's doing it in the form of a creed. In fact, scholars believe that this is the earliest Christian tradition of what we would call a creed. This thing in verses 3 through 5 that Paul is delivering yet again 
was formulated likely in the days and weeks and the few years after the particular events it outlines. Paul, who's giving this what he also received, likely heard this creed the first time from Peter and James three years after he was converted to Christianity. Uh, It's described in the book of Acts when he came back to Jerusalem. And then about, you know, five or ten years later, on his first missionary journey, when he plants a church and preaches the gospel in Corinth, he delivers this same creed to them. It's around 51 AD. Now around 56 AD, he's reminding this church. This church is is one of those types of churches that forgets things easily, kind of like you and me. They're kind of a little bit messed up. And Paul's saying, let me remind you again. And he's reminding them of the same gospel, and he's using the same creed. You see, back in ancient times, they, uh, they had to be very repetitive and meticulous about how they communicated and delivered their messages because, you know, they weren't as, as uh, progressed as we are today, you know, with superior and reliable information mediums like we have, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and Cambridge Analytica and all these things, you know, because they were just primitive and basic back then. So they had to stick with these creeds. Of course, I'm being facetious because whatever Paul was reminding this church of and whatever he was reciting is exactly what we need for such a time as this. Amen. We need to dig deeply into what is being said and what the implications are on our lives. The early church, the first few centuries, grew very rapidly partially because of the intense persecution and partially because they had what scholars call continuity of message. They didn't allow their creativity and individual expressions to supersede the the beauty of the message that they delivered largely in forms of these creeds and later in the more robust creed, the Apostles' Creed, that appeared about two centuries after this. The church exploded because they had continuity of message. And if you find yourself like me, living more discontinuous lifestyles and discontinuous thinking, confused sometimes, what you need and what I need and what we need and what they need is exactly what Paul's delivering here. So in the next 20 or so minutes, I want to answer a few basic questions about our passage here. Before we get to the Apostles' Creed, I want to go over some questions about this creed. Question one that I want to ask as we go through this, what is the main message? What is the main message of this creed we find in 1 Corinthians 15? And largely for that, we'll go through verses 3 through 6. Verses 3 through 6, what is the main message of this creed? And then we'll ask ourselves, what does that mean to me? In other words, How must we process this message today? And for that, we'll go back to see how that's beautifully answered in verses 1 through 2. So here we go. What is the main message of this creed? Thank you for asking. The end of verse 1 says this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Christ died for our sins. I'm going to slow down because if you're... If you've been to church a few too many times like me, sometimes you can get familiar. 
and take for granted certain things. So one word at a time, Christ died. This word Christ is important. The perfect one, the promised Messiah is the one who died. Christ. Now if I said, hey brother, I love you. Emmy, I love you so much. You know, bro, I would die for you. Maybe you'd feel special. Brother, I would die for you. Maybe you'd feel special, but that wouldn't help you in your status before a holy God. We stand before God condemned in our sin. So someone's special thoughts to die for us, just anyone dying for us doesn't necessarily help us. But it says Christ died. He is the perfect one, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, the spotless lamb. He alone can atone for our sin. He lived an infinitely perfect life, and therefore he's the only one who's qualified to cancel an infinite debt of sin. Christ died. And then he, he died. He, re, he really died. And it's strange that we underline this because it's absurd to think that this would be argued today. But when you think about it, if any of these details in this creed can be proven wrong, it really upsets the flow of the whole message. And there's been theories to surmise maybe he didn't die. And they're proven wrong for various reasons. There's actually mounting medical evidence that Christ did indeed die. He died. It says he died in accordance with scripture. You know, there was a whole bunch of Old Testament passages that predicted the death, the sacrificial atoning death of the Messiah. One of my favorites is in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. In other words, following our own hearts. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died. Why? Well, these last words, for the iniquity of us all. Or as the creed goes here in 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins. He died for, for our sins. Our sins. Think about sin for a little while. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. This says something really important about God if we'll slow down and consider it. God is not a, a, a God who just kind of arbitrarily chastises sinners in his delight. He's patient and loving and kind. And with humans, he renders to us often what we've already earned in judgment. 
the death that we have inherently brought upon ourselves and often through us to spread around, he renders to us what we earn. One of the scariest things about God is that he'll often let us do what we want and suffer the consequences. That's, that's a truth. But our creed holds a deeper truth that Christ died for our sins. He took upon himself the punishment that we earned through our sin. He died for our sins. And think about sin. A man that I really respect preaches and he says, you don't just do sins. You are a sinner. You don't just have problems. You are the problem. And Christ died for us. He, he died for his enemies. He died for people who are born into a rebellion. We confirm our rebellion with our actions, with, with the way we're born, with our nature, with our denial of all this. We continue to spread around our rebellion, and yet he dies for us. He dies for his enemies. And not just so that he can make us his allies that he kind of tolerates, but so that he can make us into sons and daughters that are adopted into the family, former enemies, now full-fledged sons and daughters. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. This should always be a little bit outrageous and amazing. Christ died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried, it says. Now this seems like just a simple minor detail until you consider what follows. Is it because... The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus were details that all happened in a particular city right under the noses of the people who most wanted to reject the implications of all this stuff that happened. And you couldn't deny that he actually died and was buried in a particular place in a certain man that you could go and, and account for his name and his heritage, bought a certain place for him to be buried. And his disciples three days later found that same particular tomb that was owned by this particular man, particularly empty. And then his enemies went to the same place and found it empty and have tried to figure out what do we do with that. And now you and I can go to that place and that tomb and find it still very much empty. This is important. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to scripture, it goes on to say. He was raised. Rice Brooks is one of the founders of our ministry, uh, Every Nation, and he also wrote the books uh, in the God's Not Dead series that contributed to the, uh, the movies of the same name. He says this, he writes, our entire faith rises and falls on the credibility of a singular miraculous event, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An event that happened in a city in which it would have been easiest to disprove at the time. My thought is that if, if it wasn't disproven then, then how can it be now? He was raised according to scriptures. There's a few key places that predict the resurrection of the Messiah. Uh, the first and foremost is Abraham himself predicting that the Messiah would raise in Genesis 22. 
Abraham has just gotten back from death, from sacrificial death, as it were, of his only begotten son uh, from his wife, Sarah. Isaac, he's just basically been provided his son back. And yet, even though past tense, God provided for, for Abraham, Abraham stands on the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on and uses a future tense affirmation of this provision. Check this out. Verse 14 of Genesis 22. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, in the Hebrew language, the personal pronouns with this, this assertion could also be rendered, and you'll see, you can see in your own footnotes in your Bible, it could also be said, instead of the Lord will provide, it could be rendered, he will be seen. And in fact, Jesus raised from the dead in that same city, and he was seen. And our creed goes on to list particular people in particular places that saw this man alive that was formerly dead. First person it lists is Cephas. Cephas is Peter that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of those were a few decades after this creed was circulating with Peter's Aramaic rendering of his name, Cephas, in the Hebrew, Kepha. You see, this shows, importantly, that this creed was accurate and it was early around the events that very really happened that it was telling about, that it was dictating. He appeared, the dead man who wasn't dead anymore, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. The 12 is important, and we'll see in a minute why this is important, but Paul doesn't use this language, the 12, really in anywhere else in his writings. He appeared to Cephas and to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 at one time. This would have been how he appeared to the people on the Galilean hillside, a journey away from Jerusalem. He appeared to them. He says most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That last part just shows the precision that he wanted to be very careful at this time, maybe a decade and a half after all these things happened, be really careful to be specific. Some have fallen asleep. But he says most of them are alive. In other words, you can go talk to them yourself. Go ask them. Go interrogate them. Go hold a knife to their throat. See if they change their story. In fact, we know from history that many were interrogated. Hebrews said that some had their heads chopped off. Some were sawn in two. Some had their skin flayed off of them, and none recanted their story. This is psychologically a problem if you're going to deny Jesus. There has to be an explanation for why 500 people would claim to see a dead man that was alive, and none of them changed their story, even though many of them suffered torture as a result of this story. There has to be a good explanation given for this. And many explanations are given because this phenomenon has produced a lot of movement. Movement that has to be explained somehow. National Geographic and a few other channels which are, you know, are not Christian companies, 
have to explain this somehow. And they, they always will come out with something every new year, something that's absurdly ridiculous to try to explain it because it is something that has to be explained. And if you go through the different theories, you know, people were hallucinating together, 500 people, the same hallucination. Interesting. The only reasonable explanation for why 500 people would claim to see a dead man that was alive and pay a high price for it is because, listen, they saw a dead man who was alive. And he's still alive. And he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And he'll raise us up to life, those who have faith in him. This is an important message. And people paid a high price for it. Case for Christ is, is a good movie that came out last year, and it's an even better book that came out a little over a decade ago. It's a true story about Lee Strobel, who was, at the time, an atheist journalist for the Chicago Tribune. In the story, his wife converts to Christianity, and soon uh, what Lee had experienced as his own semblance of peace in his home started to, to shatter with what he called his wife's superstitions. And so he set out to kind of disprove the basic tenets of Christianity. And he, he went on kind of an obsessive journey to disprove some of the assertions from our creed. He thought, man, you know, if I can just disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then the whole thing comes crumbling. And he was right in his assertion, but his efforts to disprove it would be found unsuccessful and futile. In fact, in all his traveling and the expenses he paid with his intensely personal investigative reporting, he tried his best to disprove the resurrection, and he began to doubt his own doubts. And soon enough, he was sitting in a desk across the desk from Gary Habermas, who's one of the foremost scholars on the resurrection today. And one of Strobel's last remaining arguments was from our passage. You see, he saw 1 Corinthians 15, and he said, look, I know from my literary experience that a lot of the things that Paul's saying have what he called literary variants. And he says, this is a contradiction. Paul doesn't use this language anywhere else, but here he's making these outrageous claims and using different language. It seems like they're not even the same words he uses elsewhere. And he present, presents this to Habermas as this kind of gotcha moment. And Habermas just responds, you're right. Strobel didn't really know what to do with that. Habermas goes on and says, you're right. They're, they're not Paul's words. They're actually a creed. They're a creed that pre-existed Paul's conversion. It was circulating before Paul. You're on to something, Lee. A simple moment like this and a change of perspective ended up leading Lee Strobel to faith in Christ. What is the message of the creed? Christ died in accordance with scriptures for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to many particular people in the 40 days before his ascension, after his resurrection. That's the message. With the message that's that important, my second question for today is, 
How must we process this message today? Chapter begins in verse 1. Now, brothers, I would remind you. Everyone say remind. Remind. This church needed reminding and God was gracious enough to remind them. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you'll know that there was such a hot mess that honestly some of their actions probably warranted God rejecting them as a church and yet he was reminding them. You and I, we actually deserve God rejecting us and yet he mercifully and graciously reminds us of the same things. In fact, with with you, if, if you fall away from God, if you backslide from God, God isn't thinking like, you know what, man? I already told them this and they just totally spit on it. So pff, I'm gonna reject them. He doesn't wanna reject you. And he doesn't even wanna just be like, all right, well, I'll just give them something, you know, the next best thing because they've already ruined the first thing. He doesn't wanna give you this, the thing of second or third or fourth importance. He wants to remind you that your first love still awaits you. He wants to give you the thing of first importance. This week, I was studying all these things and kind of balancing different things in my super important schedule, right? And God spoke to me when I was driving and said, Peter, I know you're preparing for a sermon, but I want you to receive these things and know that I'm reminding you of these things. You see, I need reminders a lot that to God, I'm not Pastor Peter. I might have very real pressures as a daddy or as a pastor that seem so big to me, right? But when I bring them to the God that saved me as a kid 20 years ago through the campus ministry, the preaching and ministry of a campus ministry, he reminds me that I'm still essentially in his eyes that same kid. I'm his son. I needed gracious reminding and so do you and I. So listen, verses one and two. I would remind you of the gospel I preached, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. In vain. When I was seven years old, I believed that I was going to be a superhero when I grew up. When I was nine years old, I believed that I was going to play in the NBA. Uh, my, my teachers at the time told me, if you believe it, you can achieve it. Um, let me tell you, they were misleading me and deceiving me. They were liars. <laughs> I believed in vain. So for us to not believe in vain, we need to make sure that we believe the right message, the gospel which we've already detailed, but we also need to believe the right message rightly. And how do we do that? These verses draw out three things that are good takeaways for us as we, as we go today. Receive, stand, and hold on. First, receive the gospel. Receive this message. Have you already received it? Are you already a Christian? Have you already been born again? Has he transformed your life? And you know this, your life is not the same? Good, you know what you need now? You need to receive the gospel. 
There's no new thing for you. You don't graduate from the gospel. You need the same message. Maybe you need new obedience to the old message, but there's no new thing. We need this. We don't need to suffer some novel new idea. We need to receive the gospel again and again. Have you not yet received it? You need to receive it. Don't reject it. It doesn't matter how many times God cries out to you. Maybe today is your day where you fully and finally say, I receive it. I don't reject it. How could I reject such a great salvation, Hebrews says. Don't reject it. Don't try to redo it as if God needed you to perform for him to earn his favor. He doesn't need you to earn his favor. He wants you to receive which he's already full, the thing that he's already fully delivered to you. Receive it. Next, stand on it. Put your real weight on it. Put your real trust on it in a way that costs you your life. The gospel can bear the weight of your hurts, your fears, your worries, your heartache, your longings, your pain. Stand on it. Put your weight on it. And finally, if you've done all those things, hold on. Remember, the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast or hold on to the word I preach to you. And here's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. If you believe in Jesus and place your faith in him, the Bible says, Romans 10, you are saved, past tense, finished. It's over. You're saved. You're, you're new. But at the same time, it says here, you're being saved. You're also a work in progress. So you can spend your energy today trying to condemn yourself for that fact that you're still are a work in progress, or you can use that energy to hold on and to hold on in the intimate company of other imperfect people who are also holding on alongside you. That's the one you should do. The second one, hold on, confess your sin to him, receive new grace today, grow in him, rinse, repeat, rejoice, risk for him, hold on to him. Before we go to confession and communion, I want to pray for you.